Let's take a little time and talk now about the state that we are living in. Political, spiritual, maybe some life. While you are listening to Phyllis Favor. Take a minute, turn the radio up. Take a seat in the pastor's office. into the pastor's office. Listen, can you believe it is the first Sunday in October? Uh, I was talking to a friend about this the other day. They said, you know what? Well, we're only uh, several weeks away from Thanksgiving. Uh, As a matter of fact, you know what? Christmas is next week. Uh, Where did the year go? Where did 2022 go? And can I tell you what else is going on in October? You know I'm not a self-promoter. I rarely talk about me. But on October the 14th, I'm going to turn 50 years old. Now, i, I got to tell you, I've been staying up all night long for the last four months because I want to slow down this process. But it's coming. It's on the way. And as it gets closer, you know what? I just start to give God praise that he's allowed me to get this far uh, and for all we've seen and been able to do. Uh, and, and, and for those two boys I'm raising, Jonathan and Jackson. Uh, so you know what? I'm going to take the grace. I'm going to take the mercy, and I'm going to take the blessing. So, yes, October 14th, 50 is on the way. Uh, please don't cook for me. You can just send a cash app. No, I'm just playing. All right, listen, before we get into our first guest, I want to offer condolences to the family of the late Reverend Dr. Herbert Lusk III, uh, former pastor of the Greater Exodus Baptist Church at Broad and Fairmount, had an opportunity to attend his homegoing celebration uh, on Friday. And what a celebration it was. And I want to commend his son, uh, Herbert Lusk III, uh, for the excellent eulogy uh, that he gave his father. Uh, Listen, let me tell you something, and I can talk from experience. My father pastored the church I pastored for 41 years. Uh, It is not easy to step into the shoes of someone whose shadow looms so large uh, over the work uh, that they've done. Uh, But we want to be in constant prayer for him, in constant prayer for the greater Exodus family, uh, and in constant prayer for all of the people that were blessed by greater Exodus, by people to people, uh, and by the charter school and all the great works uh, that Dr. Lusk uh, envisioned and brought to fruition throughout his lifetime. So again, uh, our condolences to the family, to the church, and to the communities that he touched. Hey, listen. Our constant refrain here in the pastor's office is about the violence that is gripping our city. 
Uh, we've spoken to the mayor. We've spoken to the police commissioner. As a matter of fact, we're going to be announcing another date uh, for the police commissioner coming up real soon. She's going to be with us in December. Uh, we've talked to all the members of city council. As a matter of fact, we're talking to all of those that have resigned their positions uh, to seek the office of mayor, to become the 100th mayor uh, of the city of Philadelphia. Uh, we've talked to state senators. We've talked to various politicians and 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 Philadelphia leaders about this violence issue. But guess what? It continues to get worse. It continues to get worse. So I really enjoy having conversations with people who are actually on the ground, in the weeds, making a difference and working in what I like to call hand-to-hand combat with the people who are affected by this violence to really try to make a difference, a positive difference. That being said, I want to invite into the pastor's office for the first time, and I'm inspired by her story, but I'm going to let her tell it. I want to invite into the pastor's office the founder and the national executive director of Mothers in Charge, Dr. Dorothy Johnson Spite. Dr. Johnson, come on in the pastor's office and welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you, Pastor. It's my pleasure and my honor to be here with you today. Well, we are so excited to have you here in the pastor's office to talk about your great works. But before we get there, you know what? I'd like you to really share with our listeners how this became this work became a priority for you. Thank you, yes. So in 2001, I got the phone call that no mother or father wants to receive. I got the call to come quick to Einstein Hospital because my 24-year-old son, Khalid Jabbar Johnson, was taken there with gunshot wounds probably about 2 o'clock in the morning. I went to Einstein, police escort. I actually pulled an officer over while my husband and I were rushing and asked her would she get us there as quick as she could because this was a devastating call. We got to Einstein Hospital, and while waiting and praying in the ER, finally the doctors came out and said that my son, colleague had succumbed to the gunshot wounds that he received. This was the worst day of my life. Um, Colleague was 24 years old. He was a graduate of the University of Maryland Eastern Shore. Our goal was, well, at the time I was working for Comar um, as a supervisor for children with mental health diagnosis, and he was working as a TSS, which is kind of a therapeutic staff support person, uh, in one of the middle schools in Germantown. And our goal was we were going to go back. He was going to go and get his master's degree, and I was going to go back and get my doctoral degree. We were going to hang out shingle and work with children at risk who had behavior problems. He was in the classroom with these children uh, who had been diagnosed and were acting out. And his, his thing was to help them in the classroom, and he was so good at that. He was a sensitive, kind guy. And so when I got that call and rushed to the hospital, all of my dreams and all my hopes and everything that I had wanted to do with this 
fine young man was gone. And initially, I didn't think I was going to survive it. I really didn't think I would survive his death, nor did I want to. But at some point, I knew I had to. I had to come up out of my deep despair and all the things I was doing that wasn't helping me to grieve and do something about it. And I went to a friend of mine, Sultan Ahmed, who had lost a son prior to those Prior to my son's death, he had lost his son to violence, and I told him I wanted to do something to make a difference. I wanted to support families who had lost loved ones, and I wanted to make a difference in our community because at that time, you know, there were so many shootings, kind of like it is now, uh, not as bad as it is now. But uh, he helped me to organize, and he actually named a group of mothers that came together. At Zion Baptist Church in their multi-purpose room one Saturday morning, he named us Mothers in Charge, and that was in May of 2003. And that's how it all got started. Thought I would do something like that part-time on the side, you know, keep my job at Comar and do this. But, no, there were so many families there that Saturday and who came after that that needed help, support, grieving, all the kind of things that are required when you're on a journey like that. So it became my life. And it became what actually helped me to heal, helped me to live. It became the vehicle. Mothers in Charge became the vehicle that I could continue to breathe through all of the pain and grief that I was feeling with Kali's death. So, first of all, let, let me let me say this. My condolences uh, to you, uh, and, and I know that sounds strange because it was 21 years ago, but it never leaves you. Uh, and I applaud the fact that you turn grief into action uh, to bless other families. Uh, and, and that's something that all of us should be inspired by. Uh, but my question to you, uh, as you worked through grief and turned it into action, were you overwhelmed? Were you surprised by the level of support you received to really get, get your organization Mothers in Charge moving? First of all, as you mentioned, it's been many years since Kali's death, but as you stated, it is not anything that you get over. You learn to live with it. It's not like a cold you get over. So, yes, um, it's still painful, and there are times that it's more painful than the others, birthdays, anniversary dates, and things like that, yes. But what I think that I really want to talk about is the courageous mom's and dads who helped to support the organization. Not that we got a whole lot of support from city and folks like that, but it was the men and women who were dealing with their own pain and grief and found Mothers in Charge a way of healing, but also helping others. And oftentimes when you help others, you get help too. So this is not something I would have chosen to do. I was really being obedient to God, because this came to me one night when I was in a fetal position in my bed to do this. It wasn't something I wanted to do or I would have chose to do, and many mothers will say at the club that no one wants to be a part of it after having started this organization. But it was more so a calling on my life by God, and I needed to be obedient to that. And in doing, and in doing so, it was my healing process a part of my healing process as well. So Mothers in Charge 
became a reality uh, as a result of your efforts and the efforts of so many parents uh, who have gone through and, as you say, joined the club they never wanted to be a part of. Talk to us a little bit about its growth and development and the types of efforts uh, you've engaged in to help bring down the temperature uh, of violence in our communities. So, yes. So, as I stated, different mothers and fathers would come to meetings with us and had different ideas about what they thought should we should be doing. And I didn't always want to be just a support group, like just, you know, we offer grief support, individual counseling, group counseling. I wanted to be able to provide that help and support to families, but that wasn't the only thing I wanted to do. I wanted to be about prevention and intervention and ways to address it. So as different family members would come, some would say, let's, let's talk to the kids in the school. Let's go to the school and talk with them about conflict resolution or bullying back then and things like that. And so we did that. Somebody else would come and say, you know, our kids and folks are so angry today. How do we get them to understand conflict resolution and anger management and regulating their behaviors and things like that? That became something we did. One day, a friend of my son's came to me and he said, I just got hired up on State Road at the prison. And there's so many young men coming into the House of Corrections. Miss Dodd, I wish you would come and talk to them about the death of a colleague and the pain and grief one feels when decisions like taking someone's life are made. And so I said, well, if you can get us in, we'll come in. We'll, you know, that's what we do. We go out and we talk to folks about, you know, the pain and grief of loss and, and hopefully making them understand the decisions that when one makes to pick up a gun, what that does to the family. And not only to our families that are the victims, but also to the families of those who are behind that gun. So we went into the prison and we started working with the juveniles that were there many of whom had committed serious crimes, and that's why they were in the adult jail. Separated from adults, but many of the juveniles were housed there back then. And so that became something we really wanted to work on, getting young people, and getting not only just young people, getting people to understand what happens to a family when they lose a loved one to violence. It's different from a loss, from an illness, or something like that, because... This is like someone made a conscious decision to take someone's life. And there's a different kind of grief. It's a traumatic grief. It's a grief oftentimes that you don't even know who committed the murder sometimes out in the street. You know, you don't even know if you're walking or in the supermarket or you're sitting on the bus next to the person who took your child, your son, your daughter's life. So that's the traumatic complications that comes with this kind of loss, this kind of grief. So in addition to providing the grief and support to families who were experiencing that, we wanted to get in the heads of those who were committing the crime and let them know how devastating it was in hopes that they would think twice before they... So anger management is something we do now every Thursday at our training center on Gerard Avenue. We do grief support virtually and in person now with individual, we're just getting back to the in-person piece because of COVID. 
Um, we provide mentoring to teens right now that come to us. The boys come on Monday morning, Monday afternoons, and the girls come on Wednesdays from Carson Valley Residential Treatment Facility. And this has been going on for quite a few years where we're getting them introduced to ways of thinking and being. Also let them know about consequences and things like that. This is also the mentoring program that we offer to teens. So we do a lot of different kinds of things like that. And it's, it's part of what we call PIE, Prevention, Intervention, and Education Around Grief. You're listening to Philly's Favor 100.7 FM, 99.5 HD3. We are talking to Dr. Dorothy Johnson-Spite, who is the founder and national executive director of Mothers in Charge. Uh, Dr. Spite, I, I've been, I always have to remind myself that we can't get weary in well-doing. Uh, but when we talk about Philadelphia and what's happening right now today, you know, do, do, do you and the team ever get discouraged uh, by the fact that this gun violence just seems to continue uh, unabated? Uh, and, and in a lot of cases, we get a lot of talk and we get a lot of uh, what we should do and could do, but you guys are on the ground doing it. But yet you still see more new members coming into this club that they never wanted to be a part of. You know, how do you continue to stay motivated? By the grace of God. Mm. I'm going to tell you, it's the grace of God. There are days when I wake up on a Sunday morning and all I hear on the news or Saturday morning from Friday night, how many homicides, how many shootings, and it is discouraging. But at the same time, we can't give up. That's not an option. We can't give up. We just have to find out, you know, how we go about continuing to be encouraged or being supported or being prayed for or, you know, to continue. We can't give up. So, yeah, it is discouraging at times. But I believe when I run into folks who maybe I connected with when they were on State Road or I stand in the back of an anger management class on a Thursday, our weekly anger management class, and I hear some young men say, you know, I've been coming now for six or seven weeks, and I've gotten some skills under my belt, and I know that if I didn't have these skills, what I would have done last night to my baby's mama's boyfriend. Hmm. Wow. But I was able not to pull that pistol on him and take him out because I have skills now to manage my anger, thanks to Steve Austin, the facilitator at the anger management class. Wow. So that's a real violence prevention piece we're doing. And we're doing a lot of that. And we, I believe that if we weren't doing what we're doing, there'd be a whole lot more deaths or shootings. Because we are talking to oftentimes the next week, I think it's next week or week after, we're scheduled to go into the Youth Study Center. We gotta, you know, we can't give up on. We can't stop doing what we do because if we say one or two, or we prevent one or two mothers or fathers from joining our organization, then that's a good thing. So I believe that we are making a difference. But it's like, you know, you water flowers. Sometimes you don't always see them bloom. Right. And that's the thing with us. We know we're making a difference. We are. And we have the data to prove that, and we have testimonies and, and, you know, letters and, you know, things that people have told us how we impacted their lives with the different programs that we've done. So now, yeah, I want to I share this with our listeners because, you know, engagement is really important to me, and that's why I do this show. You're making a difference. 
and we appreciate that. But one thing I always tell my congregation, it doesn't happen without financial resources. So how are you supported? Do you count on the kindness and generosity uh, of the members of the community that you serve? Bottom line, in short, how can we help? There's financial resources needed, and there's human resources that are needed. We definitely need money and funding, and folks can write a check or, you know, go on our website and make a contribution. That's always appreciated and needed. But we also need folks to get involved to do something. This is a community problem. It's in our community, and no one's going to come save us in our community. We've got to be the change we want to see. And it's something that each and every one of us in our communities that are impacted can do. So if you don't know what to do, reach out to Mothers in Charge or reach out to some other organ. There's lots of organizations like Mothers in Charge and on the ground that need help. There's schools nearby that you can go and, and, and volunteer. There are things that everyone should be asking themselves, what can I do today to save a life? Wow. Got to get involved. That's right. This, That's is, right. Our, this is our issue. Nobody's come, coming from another planet or anywhere else to save us. Before we depart from each other, I'm going to give out the website information uh, for Mothers in Charge, and I'll do it right now again. It's mothersincharge.org, mothersincharge.org. And when you go to the website, there is a purple button that says Make a Donation. I really want to encourage our listeners to make a donation, but also go to the links uh, we partners in peace, national chapters, the resource guide. Uh, there's a how you can help uh, right on the home page. Put your name and information in there so they can reach out to you. They need financial resources, but they also need your human capital. Uh, so please, please go to that website, mothersincharge.org. Uh, uh, Dr. Spite, uh, you talked to us a little bit uh, while we were getting prepared for the interview uh, about a community meeting that you are scheduling. We want to put a thumbtack in that date. Uh, we know the location hasn't been set, but tell us a little bit about this meeting so we can get it in our minds, and then we'll remind our listeners later once everything is in place. Sure. We're going to have a meeting on Sunday the 9th. It'll be after services and, you know, just before dinner, that we want to bring people together on the 9th of October who may have lost a loved one and need support, maybe had never heard of Mothers in Charge, to come out and see how we may be able to help. But we also want folks in the community who haven't lost anyone and don't want to and want to hear how maybe they can get involved to make a difference. So it's a community meeting. Save the date for Sunday, October 9th. There'll be more information on our website that you just gave out or they can give us a call. All right, ladies and gentlemen, October the 9th, and please go to the website, mothersincharge.org, mothersincharge.org, uh, to get more information on that community meeting. We want you to be there. We want to be there uh, to support this effort. Uh, Dr. Spite, thank you so much uh, for joining us in the pastor's office today. Uh, I continually uh, want to bring on guests that are dealing with this issue of violence in our community. So I want to encourage you to continue the great work. Uh, know that we'll be in prayer for you at any time that we can use these airwaves uh, to help you move your mission forward. I want you to know we're right here for you. 
Thank you, Pastor. I appreciate that so much. And please do keep us in prayer. Let's take a little time and talk now about the state that we are living in. Political, spiritual, maybe some life. While you are listening to Phyllis Faber. Yeah.